Mom, there's something weird outside. I am calm. I would just be calmer if I knew how we were going to survive Christmas with 12 people stuck in a house with no hot water, no heat, and no electricity. Or food. Well, there's plenty of leftovers, Howard. Here it is. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Incidicast. This time, we're going to be looking at a bit more of a festive treat. 2015's Krampus. Welcome to this week's edition at Incidicast. Uh, I am your host once again, Phil, just on my own this time. Uh, I am planning on bringing on some guests soon. That should be good fun. Have a bit more of a discussion. Uh, things just didn't quite work out this week, so it will just be me. Big changes since the last episode. Uh, you're going to be found on multiple platforms now. Uh, we're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, and potentially more to come, depending on how things go. Check out the uh, link below. It's going to have a link tree. This will take you to the Instagram, TikTok, Discord, YouTube, and Twitter. There'll be a new YouTube video that's going to go out on Saturday. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Child's Play TV series. Nice, quick, and simple. I think summing up uh, that series should be pretty quick and straightforward. Don't need a full like podcast episode for that. Please do check that out. Please do um, give it a like and share and subscribe and all that kind of good stuff. And obviously, keep checking out the podcast. This is the main thing I love right now. Yeah, let's get into 2015's Krampus. To start with, we've got this pretty cool introduction to Legendary Pictures and Universal, these sort of frozen... Uh, title cards pretty nice foreshadowing of, of many events in the film and also big fan of legendary pictures and many films that they've made to be honest as the film opens we've got this amazing introduction into basically what is like normal christmas in america if you've ever seen like black friday and people like going crazy running over each other you know maybe even fighting that is the introduction and i think with the christmas music it's a really nice uh, tone for the film sort of a little bit lighthearted, bit of a comedy, not too serious, but of course, a really good summary of of what's to come. And I'll get more into detail as obviously the episode goes on, but things things go back to this introduction. I think quite a lot in its metaphors and, and imagery. I think the one thing that's just really funny though is just like showing how depressed shopping is at Christmas and how depressed the people who work there are. It really does make you think like, why do we go through all this struggle? just for one day but of course as this film will soon tell you there's a reason why you should and the name may just be krampus once we're done with the madness that entails in the uh, supermarket we get to see a nativity scene that has just been disrupted by a massive fight and funny enough obviously it is your central characters at the center of that struggle and this is a really nice way to introduce them and introduce obviously max who is pretty eager at getting into fights really sort of puts them at the center of a lot of the uh the madness already from the get-go it doesn't even have to include Krampus in it so the big thing that we're introduced to before anything even happens is a christmas carol it's playing on the tv uh in the kitchen as the family arrive home from the safety fight and a christmas carol really sums up this film in its entirety there are so many links and metaphors to a christmas carol it is in many ways a modern representation of that story and the the main morality of, of Christmas Carol and what Charles Dickens was trying to teach people uh, was how to be happy. You know, and he showed us through Scrooge that, you know, the misery that Scrooge felt uh, through his own actions towards uh, and words towards others, you know, were in fact making his own life a misery. And this is things that, you know, Scrooge never 
sort of realized as it was happening. And it's only when Scrooge goes through this transformation that he realizes that he's actually a better person and it makes him um, a better person by being happy. So as Max and the family returns home, Max makes a comment about how Christmas is just there to sort of serve, I guess, capitalism and that basically Santa is just some ploy to, to sell Coca-Cola. And in many ways that's funny and true, but also it's not just a throwaway comment. This is something that the film comes back to quite a lot, at least I think from my interpretation of what happens. But the main part about this that's, that's really, really relevant is actually this in itself kind of references some parts of Scrooge, right? Scrooge was the super rich guy, very, very wealthy, and he treated others who weren't anywhere near his wealth uh, very, very badly, you know, and he believed that his wealth was the source of his happiness, which obviously was proven not to be true uh, as the story goes along. And it shows that, you know, when it comes to Christmas, especially these days, you know, the reliance on the material goods, um, you know, to bring us joy may not be very true, especially when you look at not only just the people who were shopping in the film who looked miserable, but also most of the staff looked miserable. There's nothing about that corporate environment that feels really happy. It's like an artificial joy, and that's something this film sort of touches on a lot. Artificial happiness and what you have to do to really like feel the happiness at this time of year. And it's all about how we treat others. That That's the thing that makes the difference. It's not about the possessions that we own. You know, very nice uh very nice Christmas generic metaphor, you know, for a horror film. But of course, you've got to stick it in there. Or it's otherwise, it just wouldn't fit the genre, would it? Which I think is one thing that's kind of surprised me a bit about this film. It actually tries to be more of a Christmas film than a horror film. You know, it, it, not just its tone, but, you know, also its messaging. You know, and actually the horror takes quite a lot of the back foot in most of this film. There's some good elements of horror, and I think the ending definitely, like, has its own horror built into that. But the film doesn't try and just jump scare you and just try and, like you know, make it a gore fast and that type of thing. The message of the film and what it tries to portray is all about Christmas and happiness and family. Amongst the conversation that Max has with Omi, which is his father's mother, so his grandmother, so it's Tom's mother, she sort of talks about the, the legend of Krampus and, and why it's important to believe on Christmas. And the main thing that she talks about is the spirit of giving and sacrifice. And this becomes a massive part of the film as we go forward because it's all about giving and it's all about sacrifice, whether that's the family giving and sacrificing or whether that's Krampus giving and sacrificing. Of course, this was interrupted by the the family visiting for Christmas, which I think is a completely relatable thing that a lot of people have been through. The kind of stampede of family members coming through the door and the camera shaking, like showing this massive uh, influx of people coming in. I think that's just brilliant it's just so funny there's a lot of really good representations of like how crazy christmas can be in this film you know and it kind of links back to the start of the film a little bit you know with those shoppers those shoppers were equally as crazy running around and it sort of reminds me of like reindeers in a weird way sort of like the feet running around kind of the hoofs you know what i mean while they're shaking on the roofs it it was that kind of vibe and kind of nice like subtle audio work going on in that film course this is now followed by the the dinner scene which i think is equally hilarious another good representation of christmas you know awkward dinner conversations the sort of conflict of masculinity between howard and and tom howard's idea of masculinity is sort of having a gun taking care of the family sort of very like um you know middle america sort of approach to things 
Whereas like Tom feels very much more like reserved and things. I don't need to prove myself. Like I am just the man just by the nature of being here and, you know, and looking after my family. And this is going to be like another recurring theme a little bit, uh, which is really good fun as well. And obviously they have uh, Deborah, who I think is like the auntie. She's hilarious. I mean, she's like, she's a great actress anyway. And she, she provides also the comedy relief in this film. And it's just brilliant watching everything just sort of unfold in front of people and the the chaos of having dinner with people that you probably don't speak to all day. You probably don't really like, oh yeah, maybe you don't even like the food. But you know, you're all going to be there, you're all going to see face. And the second they walked in, that's exactly what they did. They pretended to like each other. They pretended that, oh, like, you know, cup of your hair, thanks for coming, thanks for bringing me this food. Like, oh, it's pretty brilliant. I think they're different perspectives, though. It does, like, um give you a really introspecting and potentially some class differences. I kind of noticed in this in the film as well. I feel like Tom and Sarah are in definitely a much better place compared to Howard and his family, you know, in terms of wealth, in terms of the possessions that they have. You know, uh, Sarah makes a really big point about, like, you know, you all haven't spent as much time as I have sort of getting these possessions, buying all these presents, making all these food. You know, next time we can just go to your trailer. Uh, she was saying this to, to Deborah, And I think, like, this kind of disparity between like class and the wealth is another really good reference to the whole scrooge thing you know we are put in the eyes of scrooge by having this family being our central focus as opposed to like howard's so we're almost feeling like you know yeah these people are like inappropriate and being like a massive disruption to the family and the, the normal way of life you know we we feel that pain yet what we're basically doing is you know looking down on people um who maybe who potentially look at things in very, very different ways. I think it's quite obvious that Howard likes hunting and he likes the idea of, like, real survival. And he kind of makes this reference between, like, you know, how Tom only went and did sort of, like, some Boy Scouts thing instead of going to the army. You know, again, it's that kind of, like, you know, middle-class America approach where it's, like, you know, you, you really not need to go and prove yourself and go and do something. And, you know, you need to look after your family and be a man and have guns and, and that kind of stuff. Whereas, like, Tom is really more representative like the upper class america you know sort of like i don't need to partake in that because nothing bad will ever happen to me in my family anyway just look at where i am look at my possessions look at everything that i have it's a really interesting uh dynamic and because of that you know and sort of these references to like oh well, sorry i didn't make um macaroni and cheese and hot dogs and that type of thing you know the sort of shaming more rustic more affordable food that probably happens in america uh and and most of the west really it really sets apart the two disparating levels between these two families and kind of makes you in a situation where you're forced to look down on them because that's that's the perspective you get given and they sort of enforce this through comedy which sort of makes it easier to digest as it's otherwise like you'd feel really cruel instead most of the heat is directed at sir and tom you know and, and sort of their way of life by saying that they're sort of being really stuck up and kind of pretentious you know bear in mind that these people like have blood ties to each other you know, and even within those both ties, there's still this level of like discrimination against each other. Partially, this is probably why a lot of these people, and I'm sure many people like this as well, this is probably why you only ever see certain people maybe at certain times of the year. And it's because you feel forced to do that. And socially, you would never want to like be around these people in, in other types of settings with other people. Most of the sort of conflict then is, is put on Sir and Tom, where they feel like actually they're the ones getting sort of bullied in this situation. But no, actually, their their approach is way more cynical. Most of, like, Howard and, and, and Deborah and stuff, like, yeah, they're poking fun, but they kind of just don't really care. They're kind of over a lot of um, the, the drama and stuff, especially Deborah. Whereas, like, for Sarah and Tom, this means a lot. The 
the show that they put on means a lot. Seems it means way more than the actual context of what's happening. That's why Sarah says, you know what, let's just get dessert when things get really uncomfortable. She doesn't care. It's all about the next presentation that I can give people. All of this kind of rubs off on Max, which obviously starts this soul like process. In many ways, this can be represented in presence as well. And I think this is probably one of the big influences where um, Howard's children sort of mocks Max for having a Christmas letter and still believing in Santa, even though Max sort of, you can tell he's on that bridge of, of understanding that he's no longer going to have to believe in Santa because it's just not real, you know, and Sarah sort of confirms this a little bit as well. And he sort of takes this frustration of, of having that belief sort of shattered by, you know, even asking questions to Tom in, in the bedroom, sort of like, you know, why should we care about them just because we share blood with them? Sentiment that probably a lot of people have felt before about various people in the family. I think it's probably quite natural. But I think it really goes hard to the story of this film, which is all about how you say things and what you say about people and how that, like, impacts you in your life. And on the back of this frustration, the throwing away of the letter really signifies back to Omi and her childhood and the things that she references talking about believing in the spirit of Christmas. And that doesn't mean have to be, like, specifically Santa. Obviously, her experiences or more with Krampus than Santa. And that there should be a degree of giving and sacrificing. Choosing to throw away that belief is one of the first, probably, big acceptances into adult life that, that children have, right? That's where the belief of the supernatural ends and realizing that, you know, reality is a little bit more grim and boring than that. And in a discussion about what Christmas means to the family, Max asks his dad, do you believe in all that? And obviously Tom's face is pretty down about this. And he responds by saying, I want to. Which definitely implies that he doesn't. Which means, in hindsight, Max is sort of the last bastion of defense against Krampus. He's sort of the last person who believes and the last person who can keep the spirit alive. I don't think, based on how the film goes and kind of how things are presented, that even um, Omi believes anymore. I think she's potentially been pretty scarred by the whole events that happened as a child and She's more in now in fear of Krampus than she is a believer in the spirit of Christmas, which means Max is this last defense and, you know, it's being used as like a metaphor of what happens when you lose that imagination and that innocence as a child of being able to believe in things like Santa and, and Supernatural and, and what that means for real life, not just for you, but people that you know and the impacts that can have and, and what things that could do to you. So Beth goes outside, we get our first introduction to Krampus, we get seen for the first time, and he's masked by the snowstorm leaking from rooftops and stuff. Pretty nice, menacing introduction. It sort of mimics Santa and the reindeer, sort of running on roofs. You know, his chains are like bells, and I think that's a really nice, like, touch in this film. You know, every time he takes a step, the rattling, or whenever his cloak's moving, the rattling, and it kind of sounds Christmassy, but like a little bit darker, you know? It's a really interesting way to inject some horror into this because so far it's been pretty light-hearted and pretty like comedic. You know, if you didn't know this was a horror film, you probably wouldn't have guessed at this point. Obviously, scared of the whole situation, she runs away, and she's essentially being pursued by him now. And she hides underneath, I think it was like a van or sort of like a truck, and he leaves with her like a music box, which plays like some creepy music, and I think that's kind of nice because a Santa would leave nice presents for people. Krampus definitely does not. He leaves a bit more of a sinister gift behind, and I think it's kind of like a cool introduction. And then you pretty much never see Beth ever again until the end of the film. So, kind of rough. Uh, sort of big uh, macho attempt. Tom and Howard decide to go out to find 
death and stumble upon like a deserted van that's sort of been ripped to pieces and clearly obviously this is Krampus because we know but they don't and it's, I think it's kind of interesting that it was kind of like a delivery van of presents and they sort of stopped these presents from being delivered because you know when, again when you think about before when we're thinking about sort of the more corporate side of Christmas it's this kind of like thing where delivery men are sort of like the new Santa you know they're the ones who deliver presents to people they're the ones who make sure things are given on time it's all about this illusion of, of keeping Christmas alive. And obviously the poor mailman uh, is a victim of Krampus, who in many ways wants to preserve that type of this realism when it comes to believing in, in Christmas. And in many ways, like Krampus is there to work in tandem with Santa. He's there to punish people who don't believe and don't behave as the anti-Santa, the antithesis of what Santa represents. On their pursuit, uh, they come across, I guess, their neighbor's house. It's all, like, frozen over. And I think it's kind of funny that there's, like, a gingerbread sort of pinned to the fridge with a knife. Kind of reminds me of Halloween. Uh, the whole scene where Michael sort of pins that guy to the wall with a knife. And I think this just sort of shows the impacts of accepting this way of life and the effects that it has on other people around them. You know, when you take away some of that magic, when you take away some of the belief, things can feel really cold in the world of... Krampus. And obviously Max Max's choice to join his family instead of uh, being the exception and maintaining that belief is where he becomes a Scrooge with them. And because of that it's not only just the family that gets punished, but the people who run him. Obviously being out there things weren't intending to go well. Howard gets injured and they have to take him back to the house. And here we get to see again this, this amazing conflict of sort of family values in a way. Because Howard wants to just get everyone armed and ready to the teeth. And Tom sort of like maintains this sort of naivety to it where he thinks, no, like, just stay inside, just keep the doors locked, we'll barricade some stuff, we'll be safe. It's that kind of, again, it's that sort of upper class mentality where people who have specific stature, specific neighbourhoods that they live in, where they always feel safe, nothing bad could ever happen here in my neighbourhood, you know, we just stay inside and help will arrive, that type of thing. Some people might think that this is kind of like a really cliche, dumb thing to do in um, horror films. Sometimes you just got to look a bit more closer at the context and you sort of understand some of the decision makings a little bit. It's something that like a director is never just going to explain to people like, you know, you should think this because of these like social circumstances that happen. No, people just sort of want things to be more easily explained to them. And that's just not always the case in films, you know, and it's why like people who've studied film in any way have to be a little bit boring and sort of they sort of piece those bits together it was interesting seeing now how max wants to be involved he wants to know how to basically help and to join in and to get actively involved whereas earlier before he made the decision to get to the lab he was like why do we have to bother these people at all which is very much like a, a child perspective right whenever like family come over and you sort of a child you're thinking like why are these people here why can't they just go home you know i want to be on my own i want to play whatever and now it's like oh, the family's in danger, what can I do? And this is this throwing away of this childhoodness and sort of becoming an adult now within the family and as a result, becoming part of the problem. Here, Omi sort of also gives some advice to Tom. She sort of says to keep the fire hot. This becomes like a little bit more of like a, a thing that they go back to quite a lot. I think it has a lot of symbolism, obviously, not only about the dangers of being in the dark and the cold, thinking about where she probably grew up in, maybe in more rural parts of Germany. But also it's a very nice way to sort of add that, add that supernatural element in as well. Something that's, I think, needed a little bit more 
in this film because it, it just sort of jumped from one to a hundred quite quickly. It would have been nice to see a bit more of a build-up of that. But you can see how this would apply to her, especially when you think about if she did have a more rural life, you know, being a warm in the cold was probably more important than anything else. You know, potentially more important than than having food sometimes. And I think actually this is just the final third part of the, the class perspective. I think Tom's mother potentially is more representative of the working class. And what she finds most important for survival is completely different to everybody else in the family who all have their own ways of determining how to survive. And for her, it's all about the simple things. It's that very rustic, probably very cultural perspective. And I think she does a really good job sort of being the odd one out because of that. She now essentially has confirmed that she has the least relatability to other people that are in the film because of the way that she thinks and the way that she sees things. And the film does a good point of portraying that because people never quite understand her perspective. You know, Howard makes a good comment over where he's like, you know, how are you going to believe this rubbish? You know, sort of just cause it like senile-like delusions or something. This is a perfect example of people who are in a different part of society never understanding or relating with people lower. And on the back of this as well, uh, Max asks uh, Tom, he says, are we going to die? And this is like a massively developed question for him. You know, this is far, far from the world of any kind of like innocence about Christmas. You know, now we're talking about life and death. You know, the reality of throwing away a lot of those beliefs and sort of magic around the event. Now we're thinking about life and death. Does this mean I'm never going to see my family again? It's this kind of shift and it's much more of an adult, much more of a grown-up mentality. And it kind of links to what I was saying earlier, where like now we've realised that the world is a little bit more grim, a little more bleak. And uh, Dorothy makes a really good point on this as well, where she says, you know, when you get to a certain age, life throws so much at you, and you, you can sort of see it coming. And I think it's a really interesting, very, very fast like development for this character. And so after a hard day, the family decides to take a watch. Very understandable. And Howard does the Howard thing of saying, I will take watch first, because, and he says this a lot, the shepherd must always sort of look after the flock. And hilariously, he falls asleep. Everybody falls asleep. And again, this just sums up Christmas Day perfectly in a nutshell, where people get really full, they get very tired, they drink a lot, and they all pass out listening to Christmas music. And considering the severity of what's going on around them, the fact that Beth is still missing, and the whole family are just asleep on that, is just it's just a hilarious uh, poking fun at typical Christmas day. But of course, in the background, the fire is going out. Don't know where Omni is in this. Pretty sure she wasn't in um, the sort of imagery of everyone being asleep. So she's just sort of letting the fire go out, I guess. She should have just gave it to Tom and just gave up and never came back. Kind of bizarre, but yeah. You know, shows that encroaching, oncoming death. Things that now we have to fear that when we become adults, it's what happens. And then down comes a gingerbread man in chains from the uh, chimney. So this is brilliant because I think it definitely is meant to there to reference A Christmas Carol. Once again, the first ghost of Christmas past. There's a guy in chains and I thought that was just brilliant. And obviously he gets eaten by um, Jordan, I believe it is, which he doesn't like very much. And then he gets snatched. And there's this really good like tug and war in the fireplace. And it's kind of like the reversal of Santa in it. Instead of coming down the chimney, you go back up the chimney. And obviously, we never know where he goes from there. This leads on to the story from Omni, where she talks about her childhood 
and what happens when essentially society like pursues these selfish needs and gains how this can sort of separate and destroy families which i think also might be a bit of a commentary on like howard's relationship because i think those sort of references of like you know marital issues which i'm not necessarily like even proposing that you know despite all relationships and things that happen that you should never pursue your own goals i think that 100 like you should equally pursue your own goals but i think it's interesting that the film at least references that type of thing and tries to talk about what happens when everyone just succumbs to their own selfish needs which obviously at christmas it is a lot of it is selfish like a lot of it is about giving presents but actually you know especially for children at least it tends to be more about the presents that they want not the presents that gets given and you know happens with adults as well um it's all about things that you want to receive not the things that you get and how this can poison the well a little bit in the story she sort of like talks about how she gives up um making wishes and how she wants people to just go away and obviously along comes krampus to punish them punish people around her but especially punishes her family and i think this is like the big lasting thing that probably changed how she really feels about this time of year you know she approaches christmas more fear than joy these days and in many ways this sort of proves as a message to early themes on sort of like the corporate nature of christmas you know the desire over bread in the examples of this uh, was the start of the downfall of everything that is to come and i think this kind of links back to the beginning when you think about like supermarket people fighting over presents people fighting over the same things it's exactly the same type of thing it's just that we're training bread for like modern day things like iphones and presents and stuff same kind of imagery and, and messaging going on of course we've dealt with christmas past so now we need to talk a bit about christmas present which i think the only kind of reference i could think of in this is to do with the toys because it seems to be the only major thing that happens next so jordan and stevie goes on a bit of a, an adventure where they sort of run into what they think is beth's voice in the attic and they climb in and they sort of disappear so the family sort of go in to see what's going on and they see this massive like jack-in-the-box with teeth and lots of like crazy teddies that have teeth and toys that are really sharp and dangerous you know and, and this is kind of like hilarious in a way and there's one as well that looks a bit like an angel which i guess is probably the closest thing to his present he looks a bit more like some weird santa that kind of look like an angel i don't know obviously darker and a bit more sinister meanwhile howard has been harassed by gingerbread downstairs like firing a nail gun at him which is pretty crazy so what's the family being attacked this is where they decide to like fight back and they fight for survival and in many ways uh they're bridging the gaps now between them and becoming more unified as a family which i think is kind of nice beforehand there was sort of like this whole reference about guns and being opposed to guns and not talking about guns in front of like tom and sarah and, and their family and now like tom and sarah like both use guns and, and everyone has a gun and everyone's shooting and you know they're trying to fight back which is pretty crazy when you think about like how much howard was shamed for bringing guns on christmas this is what happens when demonic toys are here to attack you i guess and now that the family have gotten past this the guns are shared amongst them and to be used as sort of to save each other and i think that kind of represents christmas present in a way christmas present in uh, a christmas carol was all about the idea of generosity and sharing it's just that in this case they're sharing guns they're sharing ammunition uh but they are doing this for the purpose of trying to unify as a family which is quite nice in in this they're just learning lessons and this is kind of what scrooge did 
everything that he got shown and everything that he had to experience was all about learning lessons and doing stuff to become a better person and to be a happier person. Which, considering a lot of the initial grief with the family was from each other, with that grief being resolved and the re- issues and differences being resolved, in many ways they will just become happier as a family. So once that's all dealt with, they get ambushed by elves, which is a very uh, interesting take on Santa's elves. Obviously, they're more human-sized, they're more scary. They one of them looks like a plate doctor's mask, which I think is kind of cool. And they had really like creepy, like demonic appearances. And of course, now they're here to take them away. They bring chains and they take away the baby, the Dorothy, the Jack in the Box. Pretty crazy stuff. Like I, I, the baby's innocent. I don't know why the baby has to be punished, but they did. And as the elves take them. Krampus finally arrives, and I think in many ways Krampus was always intended to be the ghost of Christmas Future, 100%. He not only looks and symbolizes like death by basically looking like the devil in many sort of like, you know, sort of Christian and like Germanic folklore, but also he's the big bad guy. Like he has to be there now at the end to sort of bring about the end of what they're going through. And as the family escapes, uh, Omi decides to stay uh, to sort of, I guess, face Krampus and buy him some more time. And Krampus sort of appears down the chimney. And whilst this is happening, the the house is icing over, the fire is dwindling out. And as he comes down, sort of like you hear the jingling of the chains and the giant horns going through the, the fireplace, which is really good, really creepy. Awesome, like, practical work with Krampus. It, you could tell it was like a mask that looked really human, and the hands looked really creepy and the horns were insane it's a really good visual especially when i guess like in a lot of folklore krampus has been sort of portrayed more as like a goat some kind of more like a creature this feels like way more human and he feels more like santa just like a bit creepier a bit more hollowed out so i assume this is here just to buy time and krampus opens his sack of presents and obviously all the little demon toys in there and i assume that only just dies I kind of wish that this was explained a little bit more. I don't quite know what Omi has done to justify being taken, unless this is just to punish Max. In which case, it seems a bit cruel, especially because they have like the prior history. But I don't know. I guess they're never going to go into that much depth. So the family now go to pursue their plan, which is to get to a snow sled that was abandoned, and to try and drive away. I think this is the snow sled that had presents in it earlier on that I mentioned and they get ambushed by this sort of snow worm it sort of comes through the ground and and like bites you and and tries to suck you in and Tom does a great self-sacrificial thing he tries to get the family to run away but to my shock because I haven't watched this film in a while I was quite shocked uh, they all get taken Tom and Sarah um, Sarah's sister leaving just Max and Stevie alone to try and start the car where they get ambushed by the elves once again. Stevie gets taken by the elves, and Krampus appears to have this like one-on-one showdown, staring at Max, and presents him with a bauble containing his note that he ripped up and threw out the window. I think this is where Max sort of dawned on him that he is the reason why this has happened, and it's kind of his fault. And now he wants to essentially become an adult about it, and, and take that responsibility, and try and correct the wrong so he finds Krampus at some weird, like, cultural ritual site, where obviously Jordan is there. She's pretty distressed. She's been taken around. And Max calls out to Krampus, 
demanding for his family to back, announcing that he takes back his wish and wants things to return to normal. And then there's sort of this sort of like weird pause where obviously Krampus can't talk, so Max is sort of filling in a lot of the gaps and he's sort of just continually pleading and crying for things to return to normal. And it gets returned by like laughter, which I think is pretty, pretty like sinister. It's quite fun. And he gets dropped in the hole along with Stevie. And you see this amazing transition where he's just falling into a fire pit. And it's it's pretty bleak. This is where Max then wakes up in bed. And I think for a lot of people, maybe this is kind of like a turn-off point of the film where they think, oh, he was just asleep all along. It's just a dream. The film does a really good job at sort of reversing that. He comes downstairs and sees his family. And it's this overly beautifully contrasted, saturated like mess of just like a happy Christmas. And everyone's like so grateful to see each other it feels like the ending of like home alone 2 that kind of like really jarring like misty scope on the camera where everything's just kind of out of focus a little bit i think in many ways this is just trying to show us how most children would view christmas the sort of rose tainted glasses everything's nice and, and beautiful and perfect but of course see that's not case and as the camera pans out and we realize that they're stuck in a bubble it's it's all really dark and sinister. The the face that um, Sarah has, the it's pulled by Tony Collette who plays Sarah, is just amazing. That reaction is just so good. Tony Collette is amazing. I am going to review Hereditary at some point. She's so good, and she really helped sell that part of the film where everyone else was a little bit like, you know, disheveled and a bit sad about it. But like she really looked like hell on earth. It's just happened. It's pretty cool. Well, everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Incidacast. This was Krampus, released in 2015. Pretty good fun, have to admit. Massive fan of everyone involved in this film, really. I think Adam Scott did a really good job. Tony Collette did a really good job. Uh, David Kochner as Howard. Very nice. I think those roles really suit those people perfectly. Uh, and Conchata Ferrell as Aunt Dorothy. I love her in everything that she's in. Uh, I think he's just hilarious. So yeah, it's really nice, good fun. Probably have to watch this again when it comes to Christmas. I think it's you know quite a, a hidden gem, bit of a guilty pleasure maybe. Probably better after a few drinks, won't lie. Let me know what you thought about this. Kind of interested. I think um, it's one of those films that really just splits people because I think of the kind of whimsical nature. Maybe they don't really care much for any like deeper meaning, or probably don't think there is any deeper meaning. I think the Christmas Carol is. Something that was the forefront of the film that happened before anyone said anything. No other dialogue in the film happened before that. And I think that just sets the tone and what this film was trying to show throughout. Of course, let me know what you think. You can do this multiple ways. Send me uh, a comment on the Instagram photo that I'll post for this. Send me a message on Twitter. Um, I have a Discord if you want to join in there and we can have some discussions. That'd be fun. And of course, we can always have discussions on future YouTube videos when they come out about the content that comes out there. I hope you've enjoyed this. Check out the link below. It takes you to everywhere you need to be. I'll see you on the next one.